Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. The U.S. determined to avenge American troops killed in the Iran-backed drone strike. A former Israeli intel officer explains the strategic decisions each side must make at a moment of major consequence. The U.S. striking more Houthi targets in Yemen as Israel's military fights intense battles across the Gaza Strip and some Palestinian medics move to the front lines of the war, risking their lives to treat the wounded. FBI Director Christopher Wray gives Congress a warning about the threat of China's cyber operations, what this means and how it could affect Americans. Social media CEOs grilled by Congress over the risks to young people on their platforms and the safeguards in place. Meta Chief Mark Zuckerberg apologizes to affected families. More takeaways from the Senate hearing. The House passing a $78 billion bill with bipartisan support to expand child tax credit and provide tax breaks for businesses. More on what's in the bill and how Senate leaders are responding. The Federal Reserve holding interest rates steady in its efforts to combat rising inflation. We take a look at the numbers with the host of NTD Business. Skin is our body's biggest organ. How we should care for it from the inside out. A special segment with the host of Beauty Within. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and good morning, everyone. Today is Thursday, February 1st. Yeah, almost Friday. Hope you're having all a good week. And, you know, clearly President Biden wants to avoid a wider conflict in the Middle East. But retired General Wesley Clark says if the U.S. responds quickly, Iran will realize that it can't escalate any further. That's right. Many do also say that um, Biden's challenges come from his stance of non-confrontation, but he did come into office trying to pull troops out of the Middle East. Um, yeah, well, and a think tank right now is saying that there's there's been a lot of around strikes now recently, whereas under the Trump administration, those military pressure and sanctions pressure led to a less Iranian aggression. Right. Hence, some analysts saying he should go back to that. But uh, in our top news today, uh, our developments on that front, the White House is now formally naming the Iran-backed group that killed three American troops in a deadly drone attack. It's also vowing to retaliate without undermining talks to get hostages out of Gaza. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The White House on Wednesday formally blamed a group called Islamic Resistance in Iraq for the Sunday drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and injured at least 40. Here's what the White House said. Watch. We believe that the, uh, uh, the attack in Jordan was, uh, was uh, planned, resourced, and facilitated by an umbrella group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, uh, which contains uh, multiple groups, including Kitab Hezbollah. But the White House added that this was not the only group responsible for the many attacks on U.S. forces that have been happening in the Middle East throughout the past few months. And President Biden on Tuesday said he had decided on how to respond to the latest drone attack but wouldn't go into details. The White House on Wednesday saying that there will be multiple phases to the U.S. counterattack while adding that this should not impact any ongoing talks to get a hostage deal from Gaza. And this Friday, President Biden will attend a dignified transfer at Dover Air Force Base to mark the return of fallen U.S. troops to American soil. 
For more on possible ripple effects of the impending U.S. retaliation, we're joined by Avi Malamed, a former Israeli intelligence official and senior official on Arab affairs. Avi, thank you for your time today. When we consider the U.S.'s strategy here, why would it choose to adopt a tiered strike over a period of time, which they signaled might be done? Thank you for having me. The key is basically restoring uh, deterrence, the United States deterrence. Now, the whole idea beyond that is to basically create an escalating retaliation if the Iranian will not get the message. There is no need necessary to start with a big, massive strike and so on. There is uh, a tactic that basically you apply a gradual process and you want to see what the Iranian reaction is going to be. If the Iranian are going to not get the message and they will continue to attack the United States through their proxies, you escalate your retaliation. So Avi, what's the Iranian thought process here when they decide their strategy, considering there's some opposition internally to the regime, as well as that protest that broke out in Kurdistan after the, assassinate, after the executions there, based on those people allegedly working with the Mossad? I think that the basic assumption with the Iranian regime is that there is going to be an American some sort of retaliation. I think that uh, the retaliation is not going to be against Iranian soil, nor going, nor it's going to be against Iranian ships or any other assets that has an Iranian flag on top of it. However, I would say that the Iranian understand they have enough of assets across the Middle East that could be substantially damaged if the United States will decide to do that. and. If it will happen, the Iranian will not necessarily retaliate. Will U.S. retaliation here affect the hostage deal that's going on between Israel and Hamas? No, I don't think so. In the end of the day, there are other things that both sides, Hamas and Israel, are calculating in that regard. Some factors in the region may try to play with that, but by the way, including the Qataris. But I don't think the bottom line that this is something that really impacts the story of the deal between Israel and Hamas. Right. So what is Israel thinking now when it's looking on what the U.S. and Iran are doing here in this clash? Look, Israel hopes that once and for all, uh, the world and the, particularly the American administration will internalize how dangerous the Iranian regime is. Uh, we see that every way in every single moment, Iranian proxies are attacking the United States, killing soldiers. Iranian proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, are taking hostage the world economy. Hamas, Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah are basically presenting a serious threat to Israel and also to their own people and to the stability of the region. This is a danger that has been evolving for a long period of time. Unfortunately, Western powers up until now delayed or did not really want to deal with the threat the Iranian regime is presenting. Every day that goes by uh, manifests very clearly that not doing that by not confronting the regime, that was a big mistake. Well, of course, you talk about the actual violence committed here. Iran-backed groups have attacked 160 times on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria since October 7th. Now, when we look at the ripple effects that this may have, is there a way that the United States is going to be able to not attack targets in Iran, thus crossing that red line and still keep this contained? Yes, the answer is yes. Iran has a very significant assets across the Middle East. One of the most significant one is in Syria. This is a location, a compound called Imam Ali compound. This is a transition position that the Iranian built inside Syria to facilitate the movement of Iraqi militants and weapons and ammunition from Iraq to uh, Syria, obviously in the service of the Iranians. There are other assets of the Iranian in Syria they could be target, they should be target, because they are part of the Iranian master plan to take over the region. 
I estimate that if there is going to be a U.S. massive strike on those assets in Syria, Iran will have to swallow the bitter pill and to move on. All right, well, Avi Malamed, former senior Israeli, former, former Israeli intelligence official and senior official on Arab affairs, thank you. Thank you. Today, the U.S. carried out airstrikes against a Houthi drone ground control station in Yemen, destroying up to 10 drones that were preparing to launch. That's according to the U.S. Central Command. These strikes are the latest in a series of attacks on Houthi weapons before they are used to target international shipping lanes and U.S. warships in the region. A U.S. Navy ship also shot down three Iranian drones and a Houthi anti-ship ballistic missile in the Gulf of Aden. CENTCOM says no injuries or damage were reported. Earlier this week, a U.S. destroyer reportedly had a close call when a cruise missile launched by the Houthis came within a mile of the ship before being shot down. According to CNN, the USS gravely used its close-in weapon system for the first time this year to shoot down the missile. And normally, missiles of this caliber are intercepted and destroyed at a range of eight miles or more. The close-in weapon system is one of the final defensive lines a ship uses to shoot down incoming missiles. That's as Israel's de Israel Defense Forces remain engaged in an intensive campaign across the Gaza Strip, reporting significant developments in northern and central Gaza. Amid the gun battles, Palestinian medics are risking their lives to care for the wounded near the front lines. Entity's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Israel Defense Forces continue to battle their way through the Gaza Strip. On Wednesday, the IDF reported killing 15 terrorists in the northern Gaza Strip in just 24 hours. And in central Gaza, the IDF killed 10 armed terrorists in less than an hour. And in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, the Hamas-run health ministry said over 150 people have been killed in the last 24 hours. Palestinian medics are now risking their lives as they move their ambulances to the front lines to be ready to care for the wounded. We now function as an ambulance field point in central Khan Yunus. Since we left six days ago, we have been working. There's a lot of injuries among the displaced who are in the industrial quarter in some schools. South Africa's foreign minister has taken note of the recent death toll and called for states to stop funding Israel's military. Her comments come just days after the world court ordered Israel to take steps to prevent genocide in its war against Hamas terrorists. I can't uh, be dishonest. Um, I believe that the uh, rulings of the court have been ignored uh, by Israel. Hundreds of people have been killed in the last three, four days. Uh, and clearly Israel believes it has license uh, to do as it wishes. The World Court also ordered Israel to take steps to improve the humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday addressed these concerns. South Africa had the temerity to bring us to uh, the ICJ, charging us with uh, genocide against uh, really in the service of a genocidal organization. Now, the worst thing that I can say is this, that many of the charges, false and unfounded, that were leveled against us in The Hague were brought by UNRWA officials. And we have discovered uh, in the last uh, few weeks that 
UNRWA OFFICIALS WERE COMPLICIT IN THE MASSACRE. Netanyahu then called for other United Nations agencies to replace UNRWA to help solve the humanitarian aid situation in the Gaza Strip. And regarding the 136 hostages still being held captive in the Gaza Strip, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the discussions to release the hostages have been productive. Kirby also said that Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be heading back to the Middle East at the end of this week to continue the negotiations to release the hostages. Jason Perry, NTD News. And today, more than 100 Palestinian prisoners being held in Israel were released and entered Gaza, including four women, according to the Gaza Crossings Authority. Israel has not yet confirmed this. And stay with us. The House voted to pass a bipartisan bill that would expand child tax credits for low-income families and provide tax breaks for businesses. More on what's in the bill and some of the pushback it faced. Heads of five social media giants grilled about the harmful effects social media can have on young people. CEOs of Meta, TikTok, X and others asked what they're doing to make their platform safer after the break. Good to have you back. The House last night passed a $79 billion tax cut package that would enhance the child tax credit for millions of lower income families and boost tax breaks for businesses. The bill gives policy wins to Democrats and Republicans, but it also received pushback from both sides. It'll next go to the Senate. The House passed the bill with broad bipartisan support in a 357 to 70 vote. It would increase the maximum refundable credit for families who owe little or no income tax. Low-income families with more than one child would receive the same credit for each of their children. But it wouldn't change the minimum earnings threshold of $2,500 needed to begin to claim credit. Nor would it change the requirement that children must have Social Security numbers for their families to file for the credit. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a left-leaning think tank, said that the bill could lift half a million children above the poverty line. The bill also aims to provide relief to businesses. Businesses could immediately deduct all their investment in research, machinery, and equipment. The deal would provide relief for those affected by disasters, including recent hurricanes, flooding, wildfires, and train derailments, and remove the current double taxation for businesses and workers with operations in both the U.S. and Taiwan. But not everyone is on board with the provisions. For some Democrats, the tax credit expansion wasn't enough. Congresswoman Rose DeLauro said she voted against the bill because she believes it provides billions of dollars in tax relief for the wealthy and pennies for the poor. It is a mockery of who representative government works for. This bill delivers massive tax cuts for the biggest corporations while denying middle-class families the economic security they had under the expanded monthly child tax credit. For some Republicans, the tax credit expansion was going too far. Conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation says the bill rejects the principles of successful pro-family welfare reform. They said any potential growth from the business provisions would be insignificant, while the family benefits would weaken welfare work requirements. 
It's welfare by a different name. The bill will now move to the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he supports the bill, but hasn't confirmed when it would come to a vote. Senator Mike Crapo, who lead the Senate GOP response, said he wants the bill to go through a committee where it can be revised before being voted on. Some of the biggest names in tech were confronted on Capitol Hill yesterday about the harmful effects social media can have on young people. Senators grilled the heads of Meta, TikTok and other social media companies about what's being done to make their platforms safer. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Parents held photos of their loved ones allegedly harmed by social media as the CEOs of Meta, TikTok, Snap, Discord and X testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee Wednesday. Their constant pursuit of engagement and profit over basic safety have all put our kids and grandkids at risk. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg at one point apologized to affected families under pressure from Senator Josh Hawley. Snap CEO Evan Spiegel also apologized to families whose children died after buying drugs on Snapchat. The company heads were questioned about child endangerment, sexual exploitation, fake news, drugs, and election meddling. We very much believe that this content is disgusting. X will be active and a part of this solution. Many of the lawmakers are set on overturning a federal law that gives the tech giants immunity from lawsuits over user-generated content. But you have blood on your hands. And want tougher regulations in place. This is about finally getting some accountability. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar told NTD's Melina Wisecup, opening up the courtroom doors the way to elicit change. Impossible for me to believe that these major trillion dollar companies cannot get the fentanyl off of their platforms when over 30% of people that become addicted, it's because of social media. TikTok CEO Sho Chu was grilled over the company's connection to the Chinese Communist Party through its parent company ByteDance and the amount of access and influence the platform grants. Senator John Cornyn stated there's a reason why TikTok is not allowed on government devices. Uh, because this data can be mined and then be used uh, by artificial intelligence to target uh, individuals. There's no question that the Chinese Communist Party try to target, target for example, members of Congress and their, and their families. Alphabet CEO was not called to Wednesday's hearing. A Pew Research Center poll found over 90% of U.S. teens use YouTube. Around 60% used TikTok. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And to learn more about the big tech and the online child sexual exploitation crisis hearing, let's bring on Andrew Selipak, a social media professor at the University of Florida. Professor Selipak, thank you for coming on the show. Actions speak louder than words. CEO Zuckerberg apologized for the suffering his company has caused those families. But have we seen enough of an effort to mitigate those harms? Well, I think the Zuckerberg robot is getting better at expressing human emotion. But I don't think that means that Facebook or Meta is going to be doing much anytime soon. They haven't demonstrated the ability to really make any changes. And as we've seen from internal documents, they know that making any changes could hurt their bottom line. And that's not what they're attempting to do. So you're saying that money is the reason. What's at stake for them? Well, 
it, a lot of different things. I mean, it depends on what issue we're talking about. We know that Meta's concerned that they're losing young people to TikTok. We know that Meta's concerned with their bottom line, that if they don't keep people on the platform, making it addictive, they see less advertising. If people see less advertising, that means less profit for them. Bottom line is that it all really comes down to money. It's not about building community. It's not about connecting people. Zuckerberg's not one of the richest people in the world because everyone just wants to give him money for the great things he's done to build communities across the planet. Uh, he's made his money by advertising. Very interesting perspective. So what was that claim brought about by these purported internal documents that Meta values teen lives at $270 all about? Well, that's a bit misleading because it's basically teens globally um, in terms of how much advertising they're consuming, the profit that they make off of those teens based on who's being targeted. And the reason why that's a bit misleading is obviously teens in poorer countries aren't worth as much uh, to Facebook and Meta. Uh, teens here in the United States are worth more. It's just sort of teens on average. Uh, but it is kind of placing a value on the head of users starting when they're very young. And that $270 average is for young people across the world, not necessarily specifically here in the U.S., where Meta is determined that American children are worth more. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. And I will point out here, lawmakers are frustrated. Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana is saying, you're on the foothills of creepy, alleging that they track people who aren't even Facebook users. And he's saying that our technology is now outpassing our humanity in the interests of all this. Now, Florida House has just passed a bill that would ban social media platforms for kids under 16. Is this a big deal? And is this gonna draw the attention of national policymakers? What we've seen is when states attempt to do patchwork legislation, there's always going to be issues. You know, it, something as simple as if a teen lives in a nearby state, Georgia, Alabama, and they cross into Florida, what happens then? Um, so this patchwork legislation being attempted by the states is gonna run into a number of issues, um, and then it's gonna have to go through the courts as well. Even if it was possible to limit kids from using and creating accounts, it doesn't mean that kids can't get onto their parents' phones, their parents' computers, continue to use platforms, continue to use YouTube. So it, it's this patchwork attempt to make a change makes it very difficult for us to really see any major differences. Okay, just in 30 seconds here, Andrew, really like what you're saying. Are lawmakers satisfied with the testimony of these tech, these tech execs? And if not, what are they gonna do about it? I don't think they were satisfied. I also don't think they're going to do anything. Um, you know, one of the big things in the piece that just aired, John Cornyn talking about TikTok and the dangers of TikTok, the government could ban it. I mean, and, and they're just not doing it. They, there's a lot of just sort of grandstanding in these meetings and not enough things actually being done. Okay, Andrew Selipak, social media professor at the University of Florida. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Well, a highly unnerving feeling, of course, putting such a number value on people's or teenagers, um, each teenager like that. But of course, they probably knew exactly what they were doing when they did that, too. That's how they see him. You know, and then a mother even at the afterwards was saying that the apology she got from Snapchat after her son died from buying a fentanyl lace pill on there mm. was fake. And these lawmakers are really upset because it's so hard to sue these social media companies because right. of that Section 230 law. Very interesting. All right, we're heading to a quick break. Two presidential hopefuls compete for union votes. Former President Trump and President Biden hold back-to-back -back meetings with union leaders, both expecting to go head-to-head -head in the general election. Stay tuned.
good to have you back. On Capitol Hill, FBI Director Christopher Wray warning Congress of China's cyber operations targeting critical U.S. infrastructure. His testimony comes as the Justice Department announces measures against a Beijing-backed hacking campaign. And today's Sam Wong has the details. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned that Beijing is leveraging its cyber capability to target critical U.S. infrastructure. That includes both military and civilians. From water utilities and the electrical grid to oil and natural gas pipelines, Beijing state-backed hackers are targeting major infrastructure across America. According to FBI Director Christopher Wray, the operation is huge, to the point that Chinese hackers outnumber the FBI's total cyber resources by a staggering 50 to 1 ratio. During a testimony before the House Select Committee on the CCP, Ray warned that Beijing's threat to U.S. infrastructure could result in real-world harm to Americans' physical safety. Steps China was taking, in other words, to find and prepare to destroy or degrade the civilian critical infrastructure that keeps us safe and prosperous. The hearing comes as the Justice Department announced it is disabling a China-backed hacking campaign codenamed Volt Typhoon. The group had attacked hundreds of office routers in order to access their data. In the face of rising cyber threats from the CCP, the committee's ranking member, Roger Krishnamurthy, vowed there would be repercussions. First, we will attribute it back to you if it's activated. Secondly, that could be a, an act of war. And third, we will respond decisively. Some members of Congress told me we still have a long way ahead of us. Are you confident in our responsiveness and readiness when it comes to tackling Chinese uh, cyber threats in the U.S.? And how vulnerable are we at this point? Uh, we're very vulnerable. I think we have a good offense. Uh, I think we have good partnerships with foreign countries. But in terms of just securing our homeland and our domestic critical infrastructure, that's where I think we have a long way, a long way to go. This is going to be a persistent and chronic threat coming from the Chinese Communist Party for as long as any of us are around. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. The 2024 International Religious Freedom Summit is underway in D.C. House Speaker Johnson shed light on the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of people of faith. Tibetan Buddhists and Falun Gong practitioners are placed in forced labor camps and they have their organs harvested by the Chinese Communist Party. And at this moment, the U.S. has an opportunity and an obligation to prevent genocide and punish those who commit it. The House Speaker vowed to punish the CCP for its human rights abuses. Last year, the House overwhelmingly passed a bill to punish the CCP for its forced organ harvesting targeting prisoners of conscience. Right now, a coalition of over 100 lawmakers, doctors, academics and civil groups are also speaking up. They're calling on the United Nations to establish an international criminal tribunal to investigate the CCP's crimes of forced organ harvesting. In 2019, an independent tribunal in London published their finding. After a year-long investigation, it found that forced organ harvesting had taken place in China for years and on a significant scale. Detained Falun Gong practitioners were the main source of organs. Yes, very sad what's happening to that group. Yes, and there's these numbers out there's just underlining the amount of, because usually in the, in, in the U.S., for example, where you have an actual organ donor system, you can wait for three, four, or five years or never even get a match. While in China, there's records of, you know, people needing an organ and getting it in three days. 
Yeah. And they don't even have a system in place. So Those time frames do not add up. Yeah. And there's a battle for union support going on. Former President Trump met Teamsters union leaders in Washington yesterday, and President Biden heading for Michigan today. He's set to meet with United Auto Workers members. Both Trump and Biden are preparing for a likely general election rematch. And today's Arlene Richards has more. Well, thank you very much. We had Former President Trump Wednesday meets with, with Teamsters, Teamsters union leaders and members in Washington. President Biden is set to meet with United Auto Workers members Thursday in the battleground state of Michigan. Two candidates, one goal, to get the working class vote. Union endorsements could be crucial in a presidential race where just a few thousand votes in several key states could decide the 2024 election. Trump's meeting with the Teamsters follows a private get-together with union leader Sean O'Brien. The two met at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort four weeks ago. But the Teamsters haven't endorsed Trump yet. They endorsed President Biden in 2020. O'Brien also invited Biden to meet at his headquarters. Biden has won endorsements from most of the nation's major labor unions. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain last week delivered a fiery speech in Washington to endorse Biden. He told Face the Nation Sunday why he chose Biden over Trump. President Biden has always bet on the American worker and stood with the American worker, and he proved that uh, during this presidency. In his speech last week, Fain said Trump stands against everything we stand for. But the UAW was slow to endorse Biden, despite his joining striking auto workers last September. It is unclear when Biden will meet with the Teamsters. Arlene Richards, NTD News. A mega donor backing Trump has also given major donations to independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Some polls have shown Kennedy siphoning votes from President Biden in a general election matchup against Trump. Mellon banking fortune heir Timothy Mellon gave $10 million to a pro-Kennedy super PAC in the second half of 2023. That's according to disclosures to the Federal Election Commission. He had previously given the group $5 million in April last year. Mellon's donations to a pro-Trump group followed a similar pattern. Mellon gave a $5 million donation to MAGA Inc. in April 2023 and gave another $10 million in the second half of that year. Political analysts say Kennedy's bid could take votes away from Biden and Trump in critical states. A December Reuters-Ipsos poll showed that Kennedy could draw more support from Biden than Trump. And President Biden is looking vulnerable on immigration in a recent Bloomberg poll. In six of the seven swing states polled, the percentage of voters who said immigration is the single most important issue went up. Over 60% of voters in that poll see Biden as at least somewhat responsible for the illegal immigration problems at the southern border. 30% blamed the Trump administration. And a recent Harvard Caps Harris poll found that 35% of respondents ranked immigration as the top issue facing the nation, with inflation coming in at second at 32%. The president last week vowed to use expanded authority to shut down the southern border. That is, if Congress passes a bipartisan deal linking immigration security measures to aid for Ukraine and Israel. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp signed a new bill into law yesterday defining anti-Semitism. The measure requires state agencies and departments to consider the definition when deciding if an alleged act was motivated by anti-Semitic intent. The law allows prosecutors to add anti-Semitism charges onto crimes against Jewish people or places. 
Kemp expressed gratitude for the bill's passage, saying Georgians proudly stand with their Jewish brothers and sisters today and every day. Georgia now joins over 30 other states that have adopted the definition of anti-Semitism set by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. The Georgia governor likened the new measure to one he signed in 2020, allowing more penalties for crimes motivated by a victim's race, religion or other factors. And up next, the Federal Reserve leaving interest rates unchanged. What this means for your wallet and are rate cuts on the horizon? More streaming services are looking to crack down on password sharing following in the footsteps of Netflix. We get the details from the host of Entity Business after this break. Good to have you back. We have Entity Business host Don Ma with us now to discuss the Federal Reserve's rate decision. For the fourth time in a row, the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged on Wednesday. Don, give us the highlights of the meeting. Okay, so first of all, the good news is that the Fed repeated again that uh, interest rates had likely reached their peak for now. Uh, but I think the biggest takeaway from yesterday's meeting was Powell saying that uh, probably rate cuts are not coming as early as March. And this is significant because there was actually a lot of hope out there that a rates cut uh, would indeed happen as early as March, which was uh, in just a couple of months. But Powell said yesterday that they don't think that uh, it would be time to cut rates until it has uh, gained greater confidence that inflation was moving sustainably down. And Powell said that uh, they don't think that it's likely by the next meeting that they will have that confidence uh, for inflation to be going down. Um, but Powell said um, that it was just a matter of time, though, even though that uh, cuts may not be coming uh, in, in March. Um, it was only a matter of time before they do come. Uh, so, but nevertheless, uh, traders yesterday seems like gave up uh, bets on a March cut, mm -hmm. and now they're uh, betting on a potential May rate cut. Right. So, but later than expected. So, how? What was the market rea market's reaction to that? Yeah. So, stocks tumbled Wednesday uh, after the Fed indicated that uh, there's not going to be rate cuts. Uh, the Dow closed down. Nasdaq, S and P 500. Uh, all closed down. Uh, seems like markets having a bit of a knee-jerk disappointment in reaction to that news um, that there's no clear guidance on when rate cuts are coming uh, in the short term. Um, traders, though, continue to see that Fed policy uh, in terms of rates will be ending in the year around the 4% range. Right now, we're at uh, around 5%. So in order for that to happen, uh, the Fed needs to cut rates at a 25 basis point uh, each time starting in May for it to reach around the 4% target. Um, but, you know, investors should probably in, uh, expect higher for longer um, because we're not close yet to the economic data where the Fed would like to see to give them confidence to cut rates. Right. And Fed Chair Powell said that the economy is doing pretty good right now. He notes that 4% unemployment rate is just below 4%. But he said looking ahead, that economic growth is going to moderate a little bit. But next topic, Don, what's up with Disney? 
Okay, so on that front, Disney is ready to begin banning password sharing on its streaming service. So in an email to Hulu subscribers yesterday, Disney said it will start limiting sharing accounts outside of your household beginning March 14th. So Hulu, Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus have user agreements forbidding users from impersonating someone else by using their username or password. And all three user agreements were updated last week. This is after Netflix made a similar effort last year and saw an increase, actually, in subscriber count. Mm, interesting. Wow. Many people will lose their access to those free accounts now, but of course, a business decision from Disney's side. So anyway, thank you so much. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Coming up, wintertime can be harsh for your skin. What's the best way to take care of it from the outside and within? A special segment with the host of Beauty Within coming up. Good morning and welcome back. I'm here with Felicia Lee. She is the host and producer of the YouTube channel Beauty Within. She's also running a Beauty Within shop, which is a skincare shop. And she has brought us some really exciting things today uh, for us to try out. So thank you so much for joining us today this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so first of all, let's take it from the very top, okay? How do I actually know what kind of skin type I have? Because that's what I will basically base everything I will do off of, right? Right, so there's three main categories of skin type. It's something that we're genetically born with, so we can't necessarily change it. Um, there's dry skin, normal skin, and oily skin. So those are the three main categories. And we can shift and change between either one of them on the spectrum, but dry skin is categorized by obviously drier skin. It has minimized pores, there's not excess, a lot of excess sebum going on, and you'll realize that you feel a bit tight and you need a lot of products to kind of nourish and moisturize. Normal skin is the jackpot, I guess, the lottery skin because it's neither oily nor dry and there's not a lot of problematic skin concerns that come along with it. Whereas with oily skin, you'll also know if you have oily skin because the T-zone, which is the forehead, the nose and the cheek area will tend to get a little bit more oily during the day, especially in the um, summer months. And you might experience more breakouts because of clogged pores and sebum production. For the winter months, let's say for me, because I have dry skin, we just figured that out. So what does that mean for somebody like me with dry skin versus somebody that has oily skin? The foundation is the same. We all need hydration for the skin and hydration means water. So there's a few ingredients that work across the board no matter what skin type you are. Things like hyaluronic acid, glycerin, these are all humectants. So humectants are drawing water from inside our skin cells as well as the outside environment. So that keeps our skin plump. So for dry skin, that's really important because we're lacking hydration. And throughout the day, you'll also experience something called tool, which is trans-epidermal water loss. So that's almost... Wow like dehydration, you know, uh, the weather pulling out hydration from our skin. So really important for dry skin people to restore that water tank in our skin. And then you move on to uh, nourishing ingredients, which include oils. So moisturizers are really important for not just dry skin, but all skin because it keeps our skin barrier healthy. It's kind of that protecting veil in our skincare routine. So you can get hydration in your toner step. So this is a toner which is characterized by a very watery consistency. It's normally formulated with really soothing ingredients mm. like green tea or um, yeah, 
hyaluronic acid, so those are popular ingredients. And then you'll see serums, which are like these, and serum consistencies can vary from a little bit more viscousy, so it's like a gel, um, which is where you'll also kind of like layer up that hydration okay. before the moisturizing step. What about these these rule of thumbs that we just kind of went through? Is that the same for every age group? Let's say I go home to tell my mom, you know, this is what you should do. Do I tell her the same thing? So the foundational basis of any skincare routine that transcends age or skin concern is a cleanser, a moisturizer, and a sunscreen. So bare minimum is a three-step process for any skincare routine. Bare minimum. Any age. Okay. Yeah. If you wear makeup, I highly recommend either a cleansing oil or a cleansing balm. This one's really cool because it swivels out. So instead of dunking your finger into a pot, it oh, just shaves out like a pencil. You don't know how much that's worth for me. Wow, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's so satisfying. So something like this, it makes cleansing your makeup off or just sunscreen off mm. such a breeze and it's so satisfying, you know, like even mentally, it's like wiping off the day's yeah. work. Um, and then following up with a cleanser. So this is known as the double cleanse where you first start with a oil-based cleanser following up with a water-based cleanser. So if you have acne-prone skin or problematic skin, you can look for something with chemical exfoliants, which, is, which will just help break down that dead skin that's floating around, which might be causing um, you know, some acne and mm. breakouts, but cleanser, very important. And then I would say just find a moisturizer that you enjoy, but then the toners and serums are where maybe you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm feeling extra dry, or maybe it's extra cold today, or I was in the office and the air conditioning and heating was taking an extra toll on my skin. That's when you'll start either uh, including these supplementary toners and serum steps. And then Koreans are really known for as well mugwort or Centella Asiatica. So you'll probably see that labeled as Sika. Brands like Dr. Oh. Jot, um, you know, formulate their whole skincare range around just the Centella Asiatica. So mm -hmm. That ingredient is really good for all skin types because it's it helps with irritation, inflammation, anytime you see redness, itching, it's like this healing, this healing bomb. So what about then men and women? Do they have because I often see, you know, there is a line for men, there is another skincare line for women. Yeah. What's the difference there? Nothing. <laughs> Skin. That's the letdown. Yeah, no, skin is skin. If you think about it, it yeah. is our largest organ. It's the only organ that we can visibly see. And the only difference between men and women is packaging. And I think more and more people are realizing that it's so important to take care of our biggest organ, the skin, um, in the most basic way. So three steps, anyone can do that. Got it. All right, so I've been wasting a bunch of money on my husband's skincare, basically. Okay, well, and whatever gets them to use it, I think that's that is the point. True, <laughs> the smell, the packaging. Yeah. All right, so what about hormonal acne? It, mm. A lot of people say actually that it gets worse in the winter. So how do you tackle that? Because I would imagine that this is something you actually do from within. Within, yeah. yeah. Well, hormonal, exactly like you said, does start from within because it's breakouts arising from hormonal imbalances. And it really comes down to what we're consuming. So consuming in terms of food, nutrition, and diet, but also mentally as well, because there is a brain gut skin connection so it's all aligned oh. um, so you can even think about it when you get stressed you tend to break out or you tend to look really dull and ashy so um, you know with stress it might affect your eating habits you might tend to start eating more or craving more salty mm. foods or deep fried foods because that craving is actually a physical manifestation as well um, and so we'll start eating a little bit you know more 
casually, sloppily, which yes. will then affect our skin because then our skin is not enjoying, not even just our skin, our scalp is not enjoying the nutrients from within that it needs. So hormonal imbalances can come from a variety of different reasons, whether you're taking medication, whether it's genetically, maybe your parents or um, also had acne that will maybe get passed down to you, which was what I experienced. And then like you said, with age, it can also increase into adult acne, which is different from teenage acne, which starts from the forehead and the cheek area. And then as you age, it travels down to the chin and jawline. Oh, so they're kind of different, um, there's different treatments mm. that you would approach hormonal acne at different stages of life. And maybe one of the reasons why winter is a little bit it exacerbates the hormonal acne is because we're not hydrating enough. So a lot of people think they have to target acne breakouts or hormonal acne with really strong active ingredients. But actually, if you take a really soft approach by just using these hydrating ingredients, our skin is yearning for water content because you know our bodies, our skin are largely made up of water. So when we don't have enough in our reserve, that's when we'll start overproducing sebum. And that's when the sebum will get clogged with dead skin in the winter, which creates breakouts and hormonal acne. That's really interesting because one of the misconceptions I might have had is that if you have too much sebum, you have too much, you should um, reel back all yes. the products that you're using, but you're saying that's not right. So that's really interesting. So where can the viewers find your shop? Yeah, so you can go to www.beautywithin.com and all the your whole skincare routine and all its steps are on the website. Okay, I think we covered a lot of ground today and I'm really excited about this. So thank you so much, Felicia Lee, for coming on today. And as for us, we're heading to a quick break now, but we'll be back in just a moment, so stay tuned. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are top stories. FBI Director Christopher Wray gives Congress a warning about Chinese hackers who are targeting critical U.S. infrastructure. More on those threats and how Americans could be affected. A heated hearing on Capitol Hill. Senators accuse social media executives of having blood on their hands for failing to protect children. Plus, what senators tell NTD about Chinese-owned TikTok. The House passes a tax bill with sweeping bipartisan support. It includes policy wins for both Democrats and Republicans. More on what's in the bill designed to help low-income families and businesses. And French farmers close in on Paris as they continue their protests over rising costs and green regulations. That's as similar demonstrations spread across Europe. Also in Pennsylvania, a man has been charged with beheading his father 
and posting a politically charged and highly graphic video online. California hit by one storm and bracing for another. One community is coming together to prepare for torrential rains and possible flooding. Sea otters are the unexpected hero in, in a study about eroding marshlands. Find out the critical role they play in solving an environmental problem when we, when we get there. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Thursday, February 1st. And in today's top news, in Washington yesterday, members of Congress grilled the CEOs of social media companies TikTok, MetaX, and Snapchat. Lawmakers are ramping up pressure on these companies to combat child exploitation. And today's Melina Wisecup has more from Capitol Hill. Concerns are mounting that social media platforms aren't doing enough to keep kids safe online. The bipartisan nature of this topic was on full display. Usually at hearings, we see a lot of friction between Republicans and Democrats, but today all of this pressure was directed at the witnesses themselves. One example of this was when Senator Josh Hawley pressured the CEO of Meta, Mark Zuckerberg, to stand up and apologize to the families of the victims of child and drug trafficking. Now, while this hearing was focused on all of the social media platforms. On multiple occasions, senators pointed to the unique challenges with TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company under the direct influence of the Chinese Communist Party. TikTok has become a, quote, platform of choice for predators to access, engage, and groom children for abuse. China-based employees of your company have repeatedly accessed non-public data of United States citizens. Why should you not be banned in the United States of America? Senator, I disagree with your characterization. Many of what you have said, we have explained in a lot of detail. I am deeply concerned about the collection of data information. And here in the U.S., you look at what it is spreading, the challenges, the children that have lost their lives. Uh, it's completely unacceptable. Dumb down our children or in some way launch a psychological warfare against America. Absolutely. We know these platforms are also used for propaganda. And on that note of propaganda, Senator Tom Cotton made a fierce display of this when he asked TikTok CEO over and over again to acknowledge an ongoing genocide in China. Listen to this. Is the Chinese government committing genocide against the Uyghur people? Actually, Senator, I talk mainly about my company, and I'm yes, here to yes talk or, about what yes TikTok no. does. Yes or no? You're here, we give, allow you're here to give testimony that is truthful and honest and complete. Yes. Are you scared that you'll lose your job if you say anything about negative about the Chinese Communist Party? Now, there are several bipartisan bills to address the issues with TikTok and other social media platforms, but they oftentimes face roadblocks here in Congress with advocacy groups speaking out against the implications it could have for free speech and censorship. One senator telling me bluntly, these companies have too much influence in the halls of Congress. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Also in Washington on Capitol Hill, FBI Director Christopher Wray warning Congress of China's cyber operations targeting critical U.S. infrastructure. His testimony comes as the Justice Department announces measures against a Beijing-backed hacking campaign. And today's Sam Wong has the details. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned that Beijing is leveraging its cyber capability to target critical U.S. infrastructure. That includes both military and civilians. 
from water utilities and the electrical grid to oil and natural gas pipelines, Beijing state-backed hackers are targeting major infrastructure across America. According to FBI Director Christopher Wray, the operation is huge, to the point that Chinese hackers outnumber the FBI's total cyber resources by a staggering 50 to 1 ratio. During a testimony before the House Select Committee on the CCP, Ray warned that Beijing's threat to U.S. infrastructure could result in real-world harm to Americans' physical safety. Steps China was taking, in other words, to find and prepare to destroy or degrade the civilian critical infrastructure that keeps us safe and prosperous. The hearing comes as the Justice Department announced it is destabling a China-backed hacking campaign codenamed Volt Typhoon. The group had attacked hundreds of office routers in order to access their data. In the face of rising cyber threats from the CCP, the committee's ranking member Raja Krishnamurthy vowed there would be repercussions. First, we will attribute it back to you if it's activated. Secondly, that could be a, an act of war. And third, we will respond decisively. Some members of Congress told me we still have a long way ahead of us. Are you confident in our responsiveness and readiness when it comes to tackling Chinese uh, cyber threats in the U.S.? And how vulnerable are we at this point? Uh, we're very vulnerable. I think we have a good offense. Uh, I think we have good partnerships with foreign countries. But in terms of just securing our homeland and our domestic critical infrastructure, that's where I think we have a long way, a long way to go. This is going to be a persistent and chronic threat coming from the Chinese Communist Party for as long as any of us are around. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. And Ray's statement is what many deemed as his darkest warning on China yet. So, dig, so to dig, dig deeper into what this could mean, we bring in Adam Savitt. He is the director of the China Policy Initiative at America First Policy Institute. Good morning, Adams. Good to see you. So first, in light of that, what do you think Americans should be taking away from that strong message? The absolute bottom line they should be taking away is that China is seeking to supplant us as the world's foremost superpower. And if we leave any vulnerabilities open, uh, they will exploit it. So, yes, uh, with cyber warfare, they are on the first layer trying to disrupt um, our military assets that are already in the region that would respond in the case of a, uh, a Taiwan invasion. So that's our troops and our planes and our ships in places like Guam. Uh, Japan and South Korea, but zoom back. And that's mostly what this uh, testimony was talking about. That's the logistics that would be needed to sustain a war in Asia. So think of rail assets that you need to take uh, tanks and other heavy equipment across the country. Think of trucks that rely on GPS and that rely on fossil fuels um, being pumped in order to get that equipment across the country. But uh, go ahead and zoom out again and look at the, uh, the uh, population and the morale of a population that needs to sustain a very difficult uh, effort like that. Look at the average American citizen. If they have uh, problems with their uh, with clean drinking water, if they have problems with their own electricity, if their GPS or their local, um, uh, uh, let's say, traffic signals go out, they can't get their ch children to school, they can't get to work. The last thing they're worrying about is our war effort. And so that is a way that they can undermine uh, our entire ability to uh, to uh, uh, wage warfare. Right, and another elephant in the room this year would be the, the election. So how would that pose a risk, or how much of a risk would that pose for that? Sure, there's all sorts of ways that can interfere there. I mean, the most obvious and the easiest would be through TikTok. 
again, where they have uh, 100 million plus uh, American users through their smartphones um, uh, who are uh, vulnerable to influence. We've seen this and it has been quantified in the way that they have influenced American opinions, especially young, but across the board regarding the Israel-Gaza conflict. They could do the same thing if there were a, uh, a conflict uh, over Taiwan. Uh, they could deploy pro-Beijing bots uh, and influencers. Uh, but even in peacetime, they can, uh, in more subtle ways, use TikTok in order to influence opinion. And also through more uh, traditional modes of media uh, as well. And they use all of those outlets in order to sow discord in areas where we already have conflict. So a lot of times they will highlight racial division. They will um, use crime. They, they will use any differences that we already have within ourselves exploit it you know they're very keen observers of our society mm. uh, and then they use uh, hacking they use social media they use traditional media in order to exploit uh, those vulnerabilities right and how much do you think do american citizens on tiktok and those social media platforms actually how much knowledge and how much caution is there about china's role in that is that enough uh, uh, yeah I, i'm sure most of them either have no idea or they're just so addicted to the product they really don't care that's part of the problem it's 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 uh subconscious the way that people absorb this and that's the way it's uh they 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 want it to be um right so yeah let so, me uh, Sorry, because we're really tight on time here, so I want to move on to the next question for a couple seconds. So Ray said, um, Christopher Ray said that if the U.S. would take every one of its cyber agents and intelligent analysts, the U.S. that is, and focus them exclusively on the China threat, then China's hackers would still outnumber the U.S. by 50 to 1. How significant do you think this incredible imbalance is when it comes to the U.S.'s ability to counter that threat? Uh, it's a scary number, and I'm sure it's absolutely real. Uh, what he said, though, and here's the genius of the American system. He said, once you take into account private actors, corporations or individuals, uh, other talented people uh, on this side of the ocean, uh, we do outnumber them, or at least our capability, our skills outnumber them. And, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, the offensive capability in cyber warfare of the CCP is indeed intimidating, and it should be, and we need to prepare. But you know who the most effective uh, offensive cyber warfare practitioners are? It's the United States. And this is something that's not fun to talk about, but we need to have the phrase uh, mutually assured destruction back in our lexicon. We don't want to talk about this. This is something we talked about in the Cold War with nuclear weapons. But this sort of attack is at that level of seriousness where it could undermine the basics uh, of our society day to day, where we need the CCP to know we have the ability and the willingness, if it comes down to it, to respond uh, in, the, in, 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 in kind. Understood. Very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Adam Savitt. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And the House last night passed a $79 billion tax cut package that would enhance the child tax credit for millions of lower-income families and boost tax breaks for businesses. The bill gives policy wins to Democrats and Republicans, but it also received pushback from both sides. It'll next go to the Senate. The House passed the bill with broad bipartisan support in a 357-70 to 70 vote. It would increase the maximum refundable credit for families who owe little or no income tax. Low-income families with more than one child would receive the same credit for each of their children. The bill also aims to provide relief to businesses. 
Businesses could immediately deduct all their investment in research, machinery, and equipment. But not everyone is on board with the provisions. For some Democrats, the tax credit expansion wasn't enough. Congresswoman Rose DeLauro said she voted against the bill because she believes it provides billions of dollars in tax relief for the wealthy and pennies for the poor. It is a mockery of who representative government works for. This bill delivers massive tax cuts for the biggest corporations while denying middle-class families the economic security they had under the expanded monthly child tax credit. For some Republicans, the tax credit expansion was going too far. Conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation says the bill rejects the principles of successful pro-family welfare reform. The bill will now move to the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he supports the bill, but hasn't confirmed when it would come to a vote. Senator Mike Crapo, who lead the Senate GOP response, said he wants the bill to go through a committee where it can be revised before being voted on. Coming up, farmers in France step up their protests, demanding higher incomes and fewer regulations. The protests are now spreading across Europe, with more and more farmers joining in ahead of an EU summit in Brussels. And a Pennsylvania man was arrested in an apparent beheading. The man allegedly murdered his father and posted a video online after. What authorities say about the grisly crime? Parts of California under flood evacuation warnings as the state braces for stormy weather. See one community joining together to prepare for the onslaught. Good to have you back. Today, the U.S. carried out airstrikes against a Houthi drone ground control station in Yemen, destroying up to 10 drones that were preparing to launch. That's according to the U.S. Central Command. These strikes are the latest in a series of attacks on Houthi weapons before they're used to target international shipping lanes and U.S. warships in the region. A U.S. Navy ship also shot down three Iranian drones and a Houthi anti-ship ballistic missile in the Gulf of Aden. CENTCOM says no injuries or damage were reported. And in France, farmers step up their protests. They're facing police blockades as they make their way into Paris. That's as farmer protests over low incomes, restrictive regulations and unfair trade rules spread across Europe. Armored vehicles surrounded the massive Rungis food market in the southern suburbs of Paris as protesting farmers reached the produce hub on Wednesday. Rungis market is one of the largest wholesale markets in the world. Most recently, it's become a symbolic target for France's disgruntled farmers. They've been protesting for weeks now, saying they're not paid enough, are choked by taxes and green rules, and face unfair competition from abroad. They stepped up their protest this week. On Tuesday, traveling in their tractors, they blockaded major roads into the French capital. The farmers are now attempting to move into Paris to register their protests at the heart of France. Around the country, Agricultural producers and their families are coming out in a show of solidarity with the protesting farmers. In the city of Strasbourg, on the border with Germany, a group of children rode toy tractors, echoing the protests. With their parents escorting the caravan, they carried signs reading, Tomorrow I will feed you. 
The protests, which began in the southern city of Toulouse in mid-January, spread all over the country and now across Europe. In neighboring Belgium, farmers drove their tractors into the capital Brussels. European leaders are meeting there today, and the farmers are hoping for a loosening of the rules that govern the EU's shared agricultural policy. We wanted to come here right away because we think the most important thing is to block the parliament. This is the capital of the European Union. This is where everything is decided. Time is up. Think of the farmers. Talk to the farmers rather than about the farmers. Discuss what is possible. We are open to dialogue. The protests have reached as far as Greece, where farmers briefly blocked major roads. They say they're facing rising production costs while prices remain low. They're demanding faster compensation for crops and livestock lost in destructive flooding last year and from other weather-related incidents. Our region here has a lot of problems, which have mounted all these years. Shall I start with subsidies? What subsidies? Just a setback of payments. Subsidies are down 50-60%. Farmers are especially vulnerable. He is the one that has to directly deal with climate change. The farmers need to be seriously addressed. What started as a local protest has grown into a pan-European movement. It shows no sign of slowing, and farmers have made it clear that they will not back down until they are heard. Actor Alec Baldwin pleaded not guilty yesterday to charges of involuntary manslaughter. The charges stem from a fatal shooting in 2021 on the set of the movie Rust in New Mexico. Baldwin appeared remotely in a New Mexico court Wednesday after waiving his right to an arraignment. He was released after the not guilty plea. As part of the conditions of his release, Baldwin may not possess any firearms and is prohibited from drinking alcohol. The 65-year-old actor must avoid contact with anyone who could testify in the case. He also cannot leave the U.S. without court permission. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins died after a gun Baldwin was holding was discharged on the set. If convicted, Alec Baldwin could face up to 18 months in prison and be required to pay a $5,000 fine. And in Pennsylvania, a man has been charged with murdering his father and posting a video online afterwards. A warning to our viewers, the following story contains details that some may find disturbing. Justin Moan was charged on Tuesday with decapitating his father and showing his severed head in a now-deleted video. Prosecutors say police responded to a call from Moan's mother and found her husband in the bathroom decapitated in a pool of blood, a knife and machete in the bathtub. Police said the suspect posted a 14-minute long video to YouTube in which he read from a script and flashed his father's head. The video was viewed 5,000 times before being taken down. Moan reportedly went on a politically charged rant railing against the Biden administration and describing his father, a federal government worker, as a traitor. And three people were killed and nine others were injured on last, last night in a building collapse near Boise Airport in Idaho. City officials say the cause of the collapse is still unknown. 
A privately owned hangar under construction collapsed on airport property, officials said. It happened around 5 p.m. local time. A Boise Fire Department official called the incident catastrophic. He said first responders found a hectic scene and worked to rescue the victims. Of the nine survivors, five are reported to be in critical condition and are receiving care at hospitals. The name of the three people killed have not yet been released. Authorities say OSHA representatives are on the scene investigating the possible cause and that there was no impact on Boise Airport operations. In California, residents are bracing for stormy weather this week. The National Weather Service has issued flood evacuation warnings in some low-lying areas and winter storm warnings for some high-altitude areas. Communities are coming together to prepare for the torrential rainfall headed their way. California is facing back-to-back storms known as atmospheric rivers this week. The storm arriving today is expected to bring one to three inches of rain, especially in Southern California. Flood warnings are in effect. Residents of San Diego are preparing for the worst. They were just swamped by flooding last week. Locals are coming together to lend a hand with flood preparations. You know, I've been out here since five o'clock this morning filling bags um, and the residents in this neighborhood, uh, they, they, they enthusiastic about the help. They've all come down. Um, as you guys can see now, there's uh, people from the community here all helping out, pitching hands. Later this week, a second storm is on track to hit the state. The next storm might even be a little bit more powerful than this first storm. Uh, but the big issue with the next storm is the, the length of time that we're going to be under the moderate to heavy rain. And so that's going to add up very quickly uh, and over a long period of time. So that could produce, again, not only urban flooding, but we're, caught, we're talking small rivers and streams. The National Weather Service issued a winter storm warning for mountain areas in the Sierra Nevada. They could see up to 18 inches of snow. A silver lining, this week's storms are expected to improve water levels across the state. In other news, hungry sea otters are helping to protect a California estuary according to a new study. They're saving marshes there by munching on crabs that damage the shoreline leading to erosion. Sea otters eat constantly and one of their favorite snacks is marsh crabs. These crabs burrow into the banks and eat the grass that helps hold the dirt in place. A Duke University study published yesterday said marsh banks were falling into the creeks there in giant clumps. The study said the return of the crab-eating sea otters near Monterey, California helps slow down erosion in local marshland. A marine biologist said by eating the crabs and lowering their population, otters reduced the erosion effect. Marshes provide uh, so many important sources. They're the lifeblood of many local communities. Uh, they increase fisheries production. They protect against erosion from hurricanes. They sequester carbon 10 to 20 times faster than forests do, and they hold it in their sediments. Uh, they, they soak up pollution before it pollutes our estuaries, and they provide recreational services. Sea otters were almost hunted into extinction. Hunting bans and habitat restoration have allowed them to make a comeback. Just shows that nature has its ways to keep everything in balance. Yeah, it's really great studying ecology. Yeah. All right, great way to wrap up the show. We'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.